food laboratory in the basement of his home. Hey everyone, it's John from CEO Raider. You know, in my prior life, I was a sell side analyst, and uh, as other sell side analysts will attest to, when you're on the road meeting with companies and particularly with investors, buy side investors, you as a sell side analyst carries the conversation. The the buy side investor may drive the conversation with questions and such, but it's really the, the sell side person who's expected to to fill the gaps with domain expertise about a particular company or companies or a, a larger industry sector. In this conversation to follow, uh, I interviewed my friend Jeff Conroy. Jeff is the chief science officer at Authentics in the Dallas area. They play in the authentication illicit trade space. Fascinating conversation and really a a vacation of sorts for me in that I had the luxury of just being able to sit back and ask a, a handful of questions and, and Jeff did all the heavy lifting. So enjoy the conversation. All right. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I have a, a longtime friend of mine who may or may not be embarrassed that he included me in his wedding party years and years ago. Chief Science Officer for Authentics, Jeff Conroy. And the subject we're going to focus on today, it sort of fits into the, uh, I don't have a great word to describe the catch-all bucket, but sort of the, the subject matter that covers cybersecurity, authentication, fraud detection. And we're going to cover quite a bit today around authentication, counterfeiting, and and uh, Jeff can can talk in great detail about the subject. He's one of the smartest guys I know, and is also one of the one of the sharpest guys I know from a commercial standpoint. It's not often that you find an executive that's really sharp on the strategy stuff, really sharp on the domain stuff, and then also can blend that with. Uh, the commercial savviness that Jeff does. So Jeff, welcome to the CEO Rated Podcast. Appreciate you uh, taking the time. Well, thanks so much, John. I think that's the nicest introduction I've ever got. And uh, you know, if, if you would, maybe if you could just tell the audience a, a, a bit about sort of your background, sort of your role at Authentex, and then you know a bit about the about the company. Yeah. So I've I've spent the last twenty years in technology and and business development in in areas. Primarily around high performance materials and uh, material science in the chemical world. Um, I, I got my doctorate in chemistry, um, and it was a little bit at the time of a, of a non traditional career path to go down materials and these other uh, um, roads of chemistry other than what was big at the time, which was pharma. Um, but it led me into this weird world of, uh, of authentication and many uh, authentication solutions on physical product and, and primarily my domain is in, in the physical domain. It, it really involves analytical chemistry, putting some type of material on a package or in a product and analyzing for it and, and trying to productize that, turn that into a kit that anybody can use, make it real easy to determine if this product in your hand is the real thing, if it's diluted, if it's been diverted, adulterated, somehow not what you expect it to be. And so 
primarily for those 20 years, it's, it's been around authentication, a lot in banknote, here at Authentics, oil and gas, and some brand protection. It's just one of those fascinating areas that I never thought I'd get into. Uh, and really blends a whole bunch of different disciplines now from uh, Internet of Things and big data. E-commerce is changing the space. And so both the physical and now uh, virtual worlds are, are coming together and, and having to authenticate transactions and products to, to ensure that business channels are being compliant, being legal, uh, not introducing counterfeit goods, and ultimately to protect the consumers of these goods from, from getting things that they don't want. So Jeff, I, I know you guys cover a, a number of different industries. Is there sort of a, a, a core industry or industries where you guys would consider sort of the, the, the bread and butter of your business? Yeah, so so at Authentics, our, we started and our bread and butter was really an oil and gas. And I would think, well, I didn't even know there was an oil and gas authentication business uh, before I came here. I've been here for the last 11 years. And uh, a lot of people are surprised to say, well, what, what kind of counterfeiting or illicit trade goes on in, in the petroleum industry? And if you think about it, it's not a lot different than two industries I'll bring up. Uh, one is any type of branded good. So if you go buy gasoline at a fully branded station, pick your, your big brand like a, a British Petroleum, Shell, Chevron, all of those companies put an enormous amount of uh, time and energy into developing additives and performance enhancement additives to, um, to make the gas run better in your engine and keep your engine cleaner. And so we've all seen that marketing from all those different companies. And the fact of the matter is it's, it's true. Um, that's why the gas costs more. And many people uh, are willing to pay that premium to keep their cars running better. There exists an opportunity in some markets, the U.S. being one of them, where that relationship between the oil company and the station owner is a franchise model. The franchisees often own many stations, and they have the opportunity through their networks to get uh, what we'll call generic fuel or unbranded fuel. That is cheaper. They're able to get it into their tanks, and consumers pull up paying a premium for a branded product but get a generic. They make that arbitrage. So that's one area of oil and gas that, that's a business for us. But the other more compelling one is uh, analogous to the tobacco and liquor industry, where uh, I think we're all familiar that just about everywhere in the world, all of our fuels are taxed. And also, just about everywhere in the world, there are tax-free applications for those fuels. So in the United States, for example, all road fuels pay a tax, uh, and it is a road tax, not a fuel tax. And so if you buy diesel for farming, agriculture, construction, industrial use, that, that fuel is tax-free because it's not used on the road. But just like an unbranded product, that tax-free product can find its way back into the supply chain and be sold for full retail and in many cases around the world that arbitrage is enormous and so people get their hands on tax-free fuels by a variety of methods and sell it in the tax channel robbing the governments of tax revenue and in many cases sometimes the fuel that's used for example kerosene is put into diesel is is problematic for engines there's only so much kerosene you can put into diesel before you have problems with engine and so that has been our biggest business is protecting either taxed or in many parts of the world, subsidized fuels, which are sold uh, below market value, and then stolen and sold and uh, sold into fully taxed or commercial market prices. Um, and in that case, the government is paying far more for a subsidy that might be aimed at helping poor people heat their homes and do home cooking or uh, have a discount on their fuel. And, and so it's either costing the government more money than it should or it's robbing the government of tax revenue. Primarily in the developing world where this happens, it's, it's revenue that's sorely needed for 
economic development. And so you'll also see a thread of, of social good in almost all of our businesses where what we're doing to combat this illicit trade is really taking revenue out of the hands of organized crime elements and putting it back into the hands of governments that can use that to, to advance their uh, social agenda within the country. The other businesses that are uh, uh, big for us are uh, currency and secure documents. I think everyone is familiar with this application. We service central banks and banknote issuing authorities in a variety of countries around the world, primarily in the large banks. And so in that business, we provide, it's kind of our formula one for an analogy to the auto industry. It's where we are, our best technology goes. We're doing the highest level of anti-counterfeit, the most covert, uh, very demanding sensing where we're looking at banknotes that are counted at 40 notes per second in these cash handling rooms at central banks. And so it's really where we develop our best technology and a lot of our R&D dollars go. And of course, what we've learned there trickles down into our other business that looks similar to currency, and that is kind of the consumer packaged good, what we call our brand business. And so if you think of pharmaceuticals, spirits, any type of packaged good that has a pretty high arbitrage between either the cost of manufacturing and the brand equity that those brands have developed, or in the case of pharmaceuticals where they are charging a price not just for the cost of manufacturing, but of course to recoup the enormous costs of both developing and clinically clinical trials for those drugs. And that's if you get a good counterfeiter who's actually trying to make the product, of course. We've all heard horror stories of, of pharmaceutical counterfeiting where all that was in the vial was water or all that was in the pill was, was sugar and there was in fact no active ingredient at all. And so our, our key clients tend to be those that are leaders in their industry or central governments, big companies that have a lot of brand equity or they are working in areas where public safety is paramount like pharmaceuticals and they want to make sure that the products that get to market are correct, that they're delivering on their brand promise and their protecting their clients. Jeff, maybe if you could speak a bit about the level of awareness. So for example, within cybersecurity, nefarious actors have been playing in that space for a number of years, but it's only more recently that the issue has captured the attention of C-level executives, corporate boards and such. Whether it's oil and gas or, or, or pharma or any of the other industries that, that you guys play in, what would you say is sort of the, the general level of awareness or does it really vary by industry? And then whom are you typically selling to in an organization? Yeah. And, and in your right, it does, as you can imagine, uh, over those three industries I described vary quite a bit. Clearly in currency, uh, everybody understands the value proposition and the threat. In, in the developed world, uh, United States, Europe, most developed markets, the amount of counterfeiting that goes on of cash is relatively low. Outside of the United States, the amount of counterfeit dollars, for example, that might be circulating could be quite high. But but the real issue in, in the banking industry or the or the, uh, the the reserve note issuance is keeping confidence in the currency. And so it, it really doesn't matter um, what the absolute level of counterfeiting is and if it's small relative to the amount of dollars in circulation or euros in circulation. It is, uh, it's really about people having confidence that that currency cannot be copied, that there will not be a problem. And more and more, a level of awareness that attacking the currency, as ha has been done in the past by, a, uh, by another nation, is a possibility. The old protections of it's really hard to make a counterfeit banknote because people don't have the printing technology or aren't aware of how to make a good note, that's all gone. Um, everybody prints notes. 
around the world. They have access to the technology. And so making sure that the currency is robust against that type of attack where it to ever happen is paramount. And so, so that's kind of a, a relatively easy market. Now it's a mature market, it's a slow growing market, but it's very robust. We're selling there to the technology leaders in those organizations, which most central banks have, that, that are looking for the best technology to protect their notes. Um, in oil and gas, uh, I'm going to split oil and gas into the government side and the brand side because I think on the, on the commercial side, they're completely different. Clearly on the government side, we're, we're talking to the same types of people uh, who would do tax stamps for liquor and tobacco and anything else that a government may levy a tax or subsidy on. And so these are ministries of finance, ministries of petroleum in many countries are separate from finance where the petroleum is just such an important part of their economy, for example, in Middle East and Africa in those developing nations. Uh, and so we're, we're, we're working at the ministry levels to, uh, one, still educate them that there's a solution. I think everybody knows there's a problem. Just Google fuel fraud or fuel theft, fuel smuggling, and you will find numerous stories. It has become a new, it has become the new way for uh, terrorist organizations to fund their operations. And so everyone knows there's a problem, but they might not be aware that there's a solution, because how do you tell what oil is which? It's actually a, a fairly difficult problem. But we have the technology that allows you to do that, and more than the technology, we've implemented programs in over a dozen countries where we've marked 1.5, I think we're up to 1.5 trillion liters of fuel now in our history to make sure that when you run a test, you can tell if it's the correct fuel in the correct spot. And so that's who we're selling to there, and it's kind of a, you know, a business to government sale where there's a lot of stakeholders, there's often legislation, other NGOs that have a stakehold that, uh, in there, whether it's environmental or consumer representatives. And so it's a, it's a complicated sale, but um, the message is, is of course, positive. Uh, the return on investment is enormous. It's, it's doing all the right things when, you've, when, when you implement one of these programs and improve the fuel quality while either increasing tax revenue or decreasing subsidy cost. The, the final one that's probably the trickiest in terms of describing how you sell is, is, the, is selling to other businesses that want to protect their product, whether that is a gallon of fuel or it is a designer handbag and everything in between. You're right, it doesn't have the visibility at the sea level that it probably needs to have. Part of that has to do with corporate culture. I promise you, the, the CEO at LVMH, it is on his mind all the time because they are an incredibly brand-aware company that takes a lot of proactive steps to protect their brand. Uh, and there are other companies that see it simply as a cost of doing business. It, it is what it is. I think which industry you're in matters. Obviously, if your product being counterfeit, such as either an over-the-counter drug or a pharmaceutical or a cosmetic that goes on the skin, uh, you have more of an interest uh, in it has more visibility because your customers are potentially at risk and your business is at risk if there were to be a problem. We all remember the Tylenol scare back in the uh, 80s where uh, you know a few bottles of Tylenol were poisoned which led to uh, closure seals and better packaging. Same thing here if there were to be an outbreak in any of these products uh, where people were harmed you can imagine in 2017 with social media we, we wouldn't need the nightly news to let us know that there was an epidemic. Uh, it, it would be everywhere. And so brands need to be very much aware of that, and, and I think those companies are. You know, other, other companies that uh, they create a nice product and they have a nice uh, arbitrage due to their brand awareness, and I'll just use them as an example, uh, Yeti, that makes uh, you know, a very good product. 
um, but they don't have any technological IP, it's all design IP. They're ripe for, for copies and they have to defend their trademark and their brand you know, very aggressively because people are happy to buy a counterfeit cooler, let's say, because there's no health and safety risk, there's no real personal risk. It, it's all about paying less for what they think is the same product, whether the quality is there or not. And so on one end of the spectrum, you have to be very practical. It's a, it's a cost to your business, but what is it going to cost in order to fix that and are you going to get a return on it? At the other end, say protecting a currency or protecting a pharmaceutical, there's much more at stake than just the business and, and the bottom line. It's people's lives or the, the confidence in your, your nation's currency. And so they're willing to spend to protect those things. Uh, above and beyond what the ROI model might say. So let's, you've touched on it, and we spoke a bit about it offline. But on the on the brand protection side, brand equity, maybe we could spend a couple minutes on that. You know, looking at it from a high level, maybe I had the misconception that the value add it was more a function of the ticket price of a particular item, but that's that's really not the case, is it? it, it it's not a function of whether we're talking about a luxury good or a, a commodity as to whether or not this is yeah. relevant, right? I mean, it's it's, it's relevant across yeah, all it, products. It is, and you know. Uh, uh, counterfeiters um, are businessmen like anyone else. In fact, I, I wrote a blog piece not long ago asking if, if counterfeiters really were innovators, um, which no one likes to think about. But, you know, they, they will invest their time and effort anywhere they can make a profit. And yes, an LVMH bag, which I can make a reasonable copy of, quality won't be there, materials won't be there, but a reasonable copy of for I don't know, 10 bucks. I, I'd much rather sell that $10 cost of good to me counterfeit bag for $1,500, but that's really difficult to do. LVMH has a limited volume. It has a limited number of places where they're sold, and, and the consumer knows that. Nobody thinks they're getting a real LVMH bag when they go to Canal Street in Manhattan and buy it off the street. The statistics you read about the value of um, luxury goods that have been intercepted and the millions to billions of dollars that it represents of lost sales is a little bit misleading because that really didn't stop a, I'll use LVMH again as an example, LVMH sale, because if you were going to Canal Street to spend 50 bucks on that $10 bag to get a fake LVMH, you were never going up to Macy's to spend 1500 on it. And so it really wasn't a loss to LVMH. It was maybe a loss and it dilutes their brand equity. It dilutes maybe their brand promise to the people who have spent on that, on exclusivity. But in some cases, uh, there have been studies that show it doesn't hurt the brand. In fact, it, it may even enhance it if it's highly counterfeited and sought after, but it's difficult to get uh, it's still difficult to get the real thing. It's it's not just the high dollar, it's really about the arbitrage. There are companies that sell $10 bottles of shampoo that have a huge counterfeiting problem because again, that cost of goods is very low, but I'd much rather if I'm making a $1 bottle of shampoo in a factory, slap someone else's trademark and branding on it and try to sell it for $10, than to just sell it cheaply for $2. It's in that mid-range that we see a lot of products that are successfully counterfeited and enter the marketplace. And e-commerce is, of course, changing this dramatically. People are, you know, I think still sure. hesitant to buy the very high-end items off of an e-commerce site. Certainly, if you want to go invest $10,000, $15,000 in a watch or buy a set of luggage from one of these high-ends, you could do it, but you're much more likely to go seek out a reputable authorized channel and the chances of encountering a counterfeit there are slim to none in the uh, in the developed world 
And so you can be much more successful counterfeiting a bottle of shampoo or an everyday item, uh, low-end apparel, that people are much willing to say, oh, that sounds like a pretty good deal, but it's almost the same price as what I would get at the store. They, you know, it must have gotten a deal or it's uh, somehow got a small defect, but it's the real thing. And so you're able to put, maybe get the same percentage ROI, but you have to sell a lot more units, but you can. And, and again, e-commerce has uh, played an enormous role in that in allowing really the counterfeiter to go direct to consumer, uh, as well as the brand owner. Uh, and so they, uh, by cutting out the middleman, not only do they um, have a faster way to market, a, but they avoid all the checks and balances that might be in the supply chain um, for a branded good. The only person who's going to recognize they got a counterfeit is the consumer, and by then it's too late because the site is down or Amazon has already shut down their marketplace, but they've popped up as another one. Uh, and so it's a bit of whack-a-mole online. Companies that service that market, it's 24-7 vigilance on finding sites and shutting them down to try to keep consumers uh, protected. So now that's an area, e-commerce, where you know, counterfeiting news has sort of gone mainstream in the past couple of years, yep. particularly around uh, Alibaba. How, how do you crack the code in, in, in that instance where you have a legitimate site and the, and the issue is really at the SKU level? Can, can your technology be in, in, embedded at the SKU level and provide a consumer with, with the confidence required to, to purchase a, a higher ticket sale item? Or is that well, something maybe I, I that's on the it's horizon? Gonna, uh, it's actually going to change operationally before it, I think there's a technology that allows consumers to authenticate. And there's a lot of reasons why you might not rely on consumers to authenticate. One, consumer awareness and having them interact with products, it, it's difficult to do. We're all walking around with credit cards and dollar bills in our pocket that we interact with every day. And I, I do take a poll in meetings to every once in a while to, to make my point. I ask people, you have a Visa card? Yes. How long have you had it? Ten years. What is the, what is the logo in the hologram? No idea. You know, what is the color shift on a legitimate $20 bill? No idea. And so these are things we interact with every day. And so if you're yeah. going to go buy a high-end luxury good and it's your first one, what does the security features, if they even have any, on these items look like? And so it's difficult to engage the consumer. Obviously, the ubiquity of smart devices and being able to take pictures, read codes, has increased the, the reach if people wish to interact with that. But again, do I download a Rolex app for a watch or do I, how do I get to that? What do I do so that I'm just not scanning a code that sends me to some bogus website that's also been set up by the counterfeiter, which there are examples of, um, that says, yeah, you just read a, a code and it's legitimate, whatever that means. I think it, it's really about intercepting it before it gets to consumer. In e-commerce, you know, we just saw this with Nike. Nike and Amazon have struck a deal where Nike will sell exclusively through Amazon some of their higher-end specialty lines. Uh, again, the stuff that's kind of ripe for counterfeiting. Uh, it will be direct Nike to Amazon, Amazon to consumer. That's a pretty solid chain. Uh, Amazon's not going to buy any gray market product and slide it in there. Nike's certainly not going to send Amazon any um, product that isn't Nike. Um, and so the consumer is almost virtually guaranteed to get it. And, and so e-commerce has played a role in allowing counterfeiters, anybody to put up a store and go direct to consumer, uh, and Amazon and Alibaba and even Walmart, everyone has played a role in that with their marketplace services where they allow anyone to set up a store on their site and, and take a 
take a cut of it. But the solution is also there in simply ensuring that anyone who's selling through those sites, and if Amazon goes to complete fulfillment and buys direct from, from manufacturers, they could wipe this out overnight. And so I, I think you'll see that happen. You see some companies doing registering of websites and providing electronic codes that you can scan with your phone to make sure that this website is actually a member and they logged in and just generated a code. So it's almost a two-factor authentication uh, of that transaction. And so there'll be some solutions around it on the e-commerce side. Um, the thing to remember is, uh, you know, e-commerce is changing everything, but physical is not going away. And uh, if it's being counterfeited and sold online, that means someone is making it and distributing it, and somebody is selling it to stores. Um, and they're probably not going to show up in Walmart, Best Buy, and, and the big box stores that have direct from manufacturer pricing and supply chains, but they are going to show up. We've seen examples of mid-size chains and, of course, the, the individual operator or the, the entrepreneur or franchisee that owns only a few stores is, of course, susceptible to trying to compete with bigger places and maybe to compete, look for suppliers that are offering deals that are almost too good to be true and often they are. They are the counterfeit goods and they end up in the, in the retail chain that way. And so I, I see us moving online in terms of gathering data, looking for products that are targeted. We may either do that organically or through partnership. And, uh, and, and But I see our focus staying on the physical world that when you get that product there is some feature on there that allows an inspector, possibly a consumer, someone to have confidence that the physical product they got uh, was in fact uh, what they want. Hey Jeff, and then just maybe finally, and I don't know if you guys are playing this directly, just if, if not, maybe sort of your, your general thoughts, but in terms of some of the, the newer technologies we're all reading about these days, whether it's blockchain, crowdsourcing, uh, you know, Google's got a new phone out, Apple has a new phone out, our new phone's out. You touch an IoT, advanced analytics. Do those create a paradigm shift in the industry or those, uh, you know, perhaps what, what kind of opportunity? How are you guys thinking about yeah. some of these yeah, uh, no, no, absolutely. Uh, evolutions I mean, in technology? All of these things uh, have a potential role to play in, in combating illicit trade. And, and we like to use the term illicit trade because what we combat is more than simply counterfeiting. We combat a problem called diversion, where product is priced for a market much lower, uh, and then it is diverted back into another pro uh, market. Uh, when this happens in pharmaceuticals, it's illegal. Uh, when it happens in consumer goods, it's, it's probably not illegal or may not be illegal, but it's certainly probably against your contract, your supplier contract, minimally agreed pricing, all those types of things. And so there's always been a push that anything added to the supply chain to read in transactions and scan codes and RFID and all these things are too expensive. They add too much friction. But I think the Internet of Things and big data and analytics have changed everybody's opinion on what the value of data is and therefore if the data is valuable the cost of getting that data can be higher and so I think we're going to see a big change in supply chain um, where people just want to know where their product is all the time and if you can do that with some high degree of confidence and, and integrity in the data then it's more difficult to slide illicit product, counterfeit, diverted, out of date, whatever it may be, back into a supply chain. So I'm um, very much interested in the Internet of Things and data. You know, big data is a, 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 a nice phrase. I don't think our data is that big when we're talking about tracking physical products. It's not like 
uh, financial transactions or social media posts where you have billions of transactions a day. Uh, but it's a large data set that is statistically significant to what's going on in the real world. And it lets you do some predictive stuff like where are my problems, uh, where are my problems likely to be. The, the whole stack of descriptive through proactive and, and prescriptive analytics that that everyone is talking about. We talked about the shift to e-commerce and how that will change distribution. Blockchain is interesting. I, you know, there's a lot of companies raising money for blockchain implementations around supply chain. Uh, and I think where you'll see some of it gain traction is where transparency in the supply chain is important. Uh, so if you think of things that are organic, free trade, they make all these claims about the goods that you can trace the product in your hand, the source of its materials, all the way back. That's a complicated database that has a lot of stakeholders, and uh, you want it to be transparent. On the more conventional track and trace, serialization, uh, tracking my goods, you know, that level of transparency and letting anyone kind of walk up to the table and be a member of the ledger, distributed ledger, it, it, it's really not that attractive. The, the added cost of uh, getting a bunch of people to hold that distributed ledger, how do you motivate them to do that? Uh, you know, so who is paying for the cost of that? Th that's something that I don't see really worked out well for pick your brand company. They could have a proprietary database where everyone who has access to that database is a known entity with login credentials. There's no need for anonymity of the users. In fact, you probably wouldn't want it. You'd want to make sure everyone that was entering transactions was known to you. I, you know, I, I still struggle with where blockchain provides big advantages over conventional proprietary database systems uh, because we don't need transparency and uh, we don't need it distributed. We'll see how that develops. And, and crowdsourcing and smartphones and consumer engagement to look at product, I think, has been going on for a long time. It just hasn't been coined that. So QR codes have been around for a while, and whether people realize it or not, when they're getting five cents off that thing by scanning a QR code, they are providing an enormous amount of information about who they are, where they are, when it was, what product number it was. And so I think you'll see that continue and be part of the IoT and big data, and potentially at some point, if technology allows, part of the authentication and combating illicit trade solution because we'll just have more data where legitimate things happen that we can go look, uh, no, not to look there, but to go look where, uh, how come we haven't seen anyone scan a legitimate code at this store for three months? I think it's time we go knock on that door and see what kind of product is living on their shelf. So all these things uh, I think are going to have an enormous impact on commerce and therefore they're going to have an enormous impact on how we fight illicit commerce and those are all things that we're actively looking at and working on here at Authentics. Jeff I really appreciate you coming on the podcast thanks for the time this afternoon my friend I appreciate it. Thanks for having me John it was, it was a really good time. Jeff Conroy of Authentics everyone.